All right, our text is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. It starts, though, with a connecting word, likewise. So I will point out that we'll explain the connection here in, in a moment. But likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience, And let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchased to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Christians are people who are called to serve. The fact that we can function this morning doing the activities of a church is due to some individuals within the assembly who have willingly chose to pick up that call to serve. You can get a bulletin on the back uh, table because someone edits and prints and folds them. You can have a cup of coffee during Sunday school service because someone has gotten here to prepare that each week. You can, you know, enjoy worship service because others have agreed to uh, take turns watching over some of the youngest kids in the nursery. You can Uh, You can see this morning because someone has agreed to organize the church's finances and made, made sure the light bill was paid. You hear this morning because someone took up the job of operating the uh, sound system. He even had to come and bring me the lapel mic because I forgot to have it this morning. Some of y'all are watching online because someone agreed to take the responsibility to make sure that the video is working. Our Our songs of worship are greatly enhanced by a song leader and musicians who are willing to put in their time and talent to that use. Each of those are forms of service, and though they are often overlooked, they are worthy expressions of love for the Lord Jesus and service to his church. Christians are people who are called to serve. Service is the essence of Christian life. It is a work to which all of us are called. Listen to the words of Jesus from Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 42 through 45. Jesus called them, his disciples, to him and said to them, You know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. And even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus said he came to serve, and he calls his disciples to serve others. 
The good Christians of a church will serve, the greatest will serve so much that Jesus even used the term for slave as he was talking there about being the servant of all. Now you're well aware of the events that happened in the upper room on the night Jesus was arrested. He washed the disciples' feet. He took up that place of a child slave. And in Luke's account, this is what he said. He said, for which is greater, he that sits at meat or he that serves, is not he that sits at meat, but I am among you as he that serves. So as followers of the Lord Jesus, we are servants of the servant. In our text, as Paul has left Timothy behind in order to lead the church at Ephesus, that church was in need of specific kinds of servants. At the opening of this chapter in chapter 3, we saw Timothy was given the task of identifying and ordaining elders, but elders alone were not going to address the deficiencies that existed in the church at Ephesus. There's another area of church leadership that was needful. If you glance down at verse 14, Paul even tells Timothy he hopes to come to Ephesus soon, right? Hoping to come unto you shortly. But there are some issues that cannot wait. So he says here in 1 Timothy 3 that two of those can't wait issues are appointing qualified elders, which we looked at last week, and qualified deacons, which is what our text is about this week. Now we need to spend a moment on the meaning of this word deacon. Some form of this word, it's the Greek word diakonos, some form of this is found throughout the New Testament. It is a very common word. It occurs about a hundred times. On rare occasions, this common word, which means just servant or minister, is used in a special way. It is, in fact, translated as deacon only five times. Four of those are in the text that we just read. The only other time that it's translated as deacon is in the introduction to the letter to Philippi, Philippians 1.1, Paul addresses that letter to, quote, the bishops and deacons. Every other time we see this word diakonos used, it's translated according to the just simplest, most basic meaning of the word, which is minister or servant. This is fairly common if you think about it for a moment. A word can be used in a common sense and also be used in a special sense. So let me give you an example. The word apostle in the New Testament. The word apostle means to be sent out, right? And it can be used of anyone who is sent out, just as the common sense of the word. So, for example, when Paul and Barnabas went on the first missionary journey, Barnabas is called an apostle. He is someone who was sent out. That's just the basic meaning of the word. But we also understand there is a special sense of that word using apostle to denote the office of an apostle, And we know in that sense, Barnabas was not an apostle. He was sent out, but he wasn't, he didn't hold the office of apostle like men like Paul and Peter and John did. Similarly, 
This word deacon means servant, and it's just we're called to be servants. But there is a special kind of person who holds the office of a deacon. You'll see that Paul in this text actually denotes, he's using it in that special sense. He talks about twice the office of a deacon. Deacon is an official title for a specific group of men in the assembly who serve in an official capacity as servants of the church. Paul has addressed elders, right? The preaching, teaching role within the assembly. And now he shifts gears to deacons because according to God's design in the New Testament, a deacon does sort of the necessary logistical or background work that's needed so that the elders, pastors are free for the preaching and teaching of the word of God. Or looked at another way, the the pastor, elder, bishops are to prepare and provide the spiritual meal of God's word and deacons are going to do the the setup of the table and chairs, sometimes literally setting up tables and chairs. There's not a specific job description for what a deacon is supposed to do. I believe that is because each assembly is going to have its own unique challenges, its own unique needs, which a deacon can meet. But there is specification in the New Testament about why this office of deacon exists. What is the end goal that it's supposed to accomplish? So, leave a bookmark here and go back to Acts chapter 6 for a moment. Acts chapter 6 is recording the life of the early church at Jerusalem. Verses 1 through 7 record essentially the institution of the office of a deacon. It says, in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration, the daily service. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren... Look you out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they had set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased. The number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great number of the priests were obedient to the faith. Just a, a quick breakdown of what's happened there. There was... There were administrative duties being required within the assembly that were taking up the apostles' time, right? Specifically, there was a large group of widows, but there were within that large group of widows 
two different groups. And without going into a bunch of detail, there were the the traditional Hebrew Jews and there were the Greek-cultured Jewish widows. And the Greek-cultured Jewish widows, the Grecians, it says here, were being neglected. And it doesn't say they just felt like they were being neglected. They were actually being neglected. But to do this work of serving the widows effectively was taking the apostles away from their time of study and preaching and prayer. And so they said, and this impediment to the teaching-preaching ministry was not reasonable. I want you to understand what they're saying in verse 2. It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. This is not a reasonable plan. Not because they were saying serving tables was somehow beneath them, right? They were not saying this isn't worthwhile work. They're not saying we're too good to do that work. They're saying that's just not the work to which the Lord Jesus has called us. The work to which we're called is the preparation and the preaching and to be in prayer so we can bring the word of God to the church. And so they make a recommended solution. Choose seven men who we can appoint over this work. And I, by the way, I love the fact that the church, when you read the list of those seven men, they were seven names that are Greek cultured names. So they, they wisely chose men who would give attention to those widows. And there is the approval of the church in this. I want you to see this. Verse 5, the saying, please the whole multitude, not even the apostles took it upon themselves to, to call and assign and ordain deacons on their own. It needed the approval of the assembly. And in verse 6 and 7, you see essentially the ordination process where they laid hands on them. And in verse 7, there is the success of it. The word of God increased. Now that was the need for the church at Jerusalem. Other churches may have other needs. There could be maintaining the church property, handling the church finances. It it could also be visiting widows and shut-ins like this. You cannot give a job description for all deacons because the needs of all churches are going to vary. Now you can give a job description earlier in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy for elders because the need of every church to, to learn and be fed the word of God is always constant. But the variety of tasks that have to be done in the church, you could not make a comprehensive list. In fact, you get a clearer job description for pastors in this letter, but only the qualifications for a deacon. And those qualifications show that the men who are called to fill the office of a deacon are expected to meet a high standard in their life for Christ. So let's look at those qualifications for a moment. Verses 1 through 7 of the chapter, the Apostle Paul set out the qualifications for a man who would be a bishop. And we noted that every one of those qualifications for a bishop is one that actually is well-suited to describe any Christian man in the Lord's church. For example, it says that he has to be of good behavior. You cannot read into that and say, well, Paul is saying that 
Your ordinary church members are allowed to have bad behavior. I point this out because in in our text in verse 7, Paul begins with that word likewise. There's this connecting word and it tells us there is a similarity between the pastoral qualifications he listed and the deacon qualifications he's about to list. In fact, the only major difference between the qualifications of an elder in verses 1 through 7 and the qualifications of a deacon in verses 8 through 13 is that the elder must be apt to teach or able to teach. He has to be willing and able to get into the word and bring the message of God's word to the flock. A deacon is not required to be a teacher. He's not required to be able to teach. Now, he can. The only requirement, though, is to, Paul describes in verse 9, to hold the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience, right? So, he doesn't have to teach, but a deacon should not be if I say the word ignorant, I mean it in the most literal sense of the word. He, he, he has to be knowing about scriptural truth. So a deacon can teach, but he doesn't have to teach. And to back that up, all you have to do is go back to Acts chapter 6 and read about the rest of the life of Stephen, who was appointed to be a deacon, and you'll find that he was a very good teacher. As Paul outlines the qualifications for deacons, he begins with the inner quality of a man's character, not the external circumstances, which is what we would ordinarily choose. This is important because many churches make a mistake of choosing deacons based on non-biblical standards. So Paul says, likewise, verse 8, Must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience? Paul is simply arguing that deacons must have solid spiritual character. We understand man looks on the outside and God looks at the heart. So look at these spiritual distinctions required of a deacon the word grave there is actually a greek word that means august or reverence or dignified we live in a world in which men are not grave they are not reverent they are not dignified in fact irreverent and undignified behavior is glorified but the lord's church is to be different from the world so A deacon takes the health of the church and the work of his office seriously. Now I want you to understand, the fact that he is grave, the fact that he is serious, does not mean that a deacon has to walk around all the time with an expression on his face that looked like he was weaned on a pickle. Right? He can joke, he can be goofy, he can have fun because he has Christian joy, but he is not silly at the moment's seriousness is required. He's also not double-tongued. In one way, this is describing a gossip. And by the nature of the job, it'll naturally require interacting with other people who need help. Deacons are going to need to be uh, 
discreet about private matters. In fact, this is probably why down in verse 11, there are even requirements for the wife to be grave or dignified and not slanderers or prone to talk down to or down about people. We'll talk about that in a moment. Not given to or addicted to much wine. This is not a drunk. Paul's saying this in the present tense. It is not saying that a man who is addicted to wine, or I would even add drugs, at one point in their life, but has now been sanctified by Christ's blood, that that person could never hold the office of a deacon. But someone who is presently addicted to any kind of mind-altering substance cannot have their mind on the needs of the church members they serve. Not greedy of filthy lucre is just not greedy of dishonest gain. A deacon shouldn't have an obsession with money. The concern here, it would seem, would be embezzlement. If, a, if the character of a man is suspect to the point that you would have some concerns about their honesty in regard to money, don't make them a deacon. Not in every situation, but deacons often will need some access to money and they will have to have some level of trust. Paul adds in verse 9, holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience. When he uses that term mystery of faith, he's talking about the, the gospel, the doctrines that are taught in the Lord's churches. The deacons should be well versed in Christian doctrine. In some ways, Paul is probably certain you can't make a list of qualifications that fit every potential pitfall a deacon could fall into. You can't write a rule for every possible situation. So the cure-all is a solid knowledge of the Word of God. He also says it has to be with a pure conscience, or we would say with a clear conscience. So a deacon must be a man who not only knows the word in his mind, but is also dedicated to it in his heart. So the requirement to be able to teach is not here, but biblical knowledge is here. It is something that's needed and required of a deacon. Verse 10 describes how deacons should be tested. He says, but let these also first be tested then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Listen, you would not give a doctor or a nurse a license without testing their knowledge and ability. Appointing a deacon without testing their knowledge and ability is also courting disaster. Not only should a man be tested prior to being appointed as a deacon, he needs to be continually tested this greek verb is actually in the present tense he must be being tested you want to test him prior to relying on as a deacon because he will be continually tested as he serves in that office of deacon and because he's contest continually tested a deacon or any church officer for that matter must be continually evaluated Listen, being a deacon is not a lifetime appointment, nor should it be a life sentence. 
A man may be removed from the office if he's not passing the test. Or there may come a time where a man has to stand down from the job because events in his own life require his full attention so he can no longer serve in the church. Primarily, this let them first be tested tells us appointing a man as a deacon is not a means of getting them involved in church. I think it's important to point that out because we see that happen in churches. We see it happen with the position of deacon. We see it happen with the position of Sunday school teacher. We see it happen with all kinds of positions. We're going to install this person because we hope this gets them involved. Well, start with something small and see if they're faithful. The man who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. And in here, Paul's describing, it's a man who is already involved, who has already passed the test, who should be appointed as a deacon. Any man who has refused to be involved in the church's ministry, but then raises his hand at the prospect of being deacon, is not qualified to be a deacon. The idea at the end of the verse of being blameless does not mean sinlessly perfect, but there's no obvious area of failure in regard to these qualifications. Verses 11 and 12 describe that a deacon should serve his family first. Even so, must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. If we understand the office of a deacon is aimed for the spiritual well-being of the church as a whole, then these qualifications in regard to a deacon's family make perfect sense. If he has the character of a godly deacon, the spiritual benefits will show in his family Because he's going to spend more time with his family than he's going to spend with the church. His family also is, almost certainly it's going to be smaller and have less needs than the church does. And if his quality of character does not help there, it's probably not going to help here. And so the spiritual benefit begins with the description of the deacon's wife. She must be grave just like he's grave she's to be serious like he's serious we we said this means reverent or dignified it also says she's not to be a slanderer not to be a gossip to get the importance of this imagine for a moment the work of those deacons back in acts chapter 6 they were going to get involved in the personal and family lives of some of the people in the church as a result they would become familiar with personal situations which did not need to become public knowledge. And so how is he going to come home to his wife asking, you know, hi honey, how was your day, if he knows that telling her is going to result in her lacking the discretion in order to keep things private? It would be a disaster to have a wife who could not be relied on to be equally discreet. In fact, the word for slanderer here is the Greek word diabolos, where we get our word diabolical from. This would be a horrific 
outcome. And so the character of a deacon must be witnessed in his family so that his wife is seen as someone who is serious, faithful, discreet. In verse 12, it says he is to be the husband of one wife. Just having one wife is going to keep you busy enough. You try to duplicate that and you are not going to have time to serve the church. You know, it's, you have to put yourself in the first century as Paul was going out and declaring the gospel. And so you have people who were polygamous, right? You can have a man who had multiple wives and children with those wives and they all hear the gospel and they all are saved. And Paul's not going to look at that man and say, okay, you need to choose now and abandon one of those wives and families, right? They're going to struggle with how to be a Christian in the life in which they were put, That man is not going to be in the position to be a leader of the church. It's not possible, right? This is not speaking about a man not being divorced. The same qualification is seen in verse 2 for a pastor to be the husband of one wife. Literally, it is simply one woman man. This also tells us the office of a deacon is to be held by a man. It's confirmed by the fact in verse 11 that it lays out the qualifications for their wives. This does not mean that women are not to serve in the church. We have too many well-founded and, and, and seen examples in Scripture of women who do exactly that. But as Paul describes the office of a deacon in this chapter, that must be a man. Paul adds in verse 12 about their children that they must rule their children and their houses well. We understand from the qualifications of a bishop earlier in the chapter that has already explained why this is important. Paul says in verses 4 and 5 that elders have to rule their house well because if they can't take care of their own house, they're not going to be able to take care of things in the church. The same is true of a deacon. He's to be a family man first. And if he succeeds as a family man, it is a good indication that he could be a deacon as well. Verse 13 describes a deacon should be respected. For they that have used the office of a deacon, well purchased to themselves a good degree, and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. There is a high degree of respect that should come with the office of a deacon. But you need to understand what Paul's saying here because there have been men who have sought the office of a deacon out of the goal of obtaining respect. That is not what Paul is describing here. That term good degree means good standing. This does not say that those who hold the office of a deacon deserve respect just because they've been assigned to that office. It says those who have, quote, used the office well, they have done a good job, they have in fact earned the respect because of the work they've done. They've earned respect because they performed as a servant of the church and seeing that service is also encouraging to other church members. That's the idea here of great boldness in the faith in verse 13. It's the 
difficult section of that verse to understand, but it means two things, essentially. The deacon who serves will have boldness in the faith, and we see that back in Acts chapter 6. And the deacon who serves well also encourages the faith-filled boldness of the church as a whole. That is, after all, the very description of Jesus in John 13 as he washes the disciples' feet, acting as a servant, setting an example for them. He tells them, essentially, this is the example of I, I've set, and you will be happy if you do it. If you want to find Christian contentment, you will find it through service, not through being served. That's his example for each of us. Each of us are called to serve Christ through serving others, but a special few within the Lord's church should hold the office of servant, the office of deacon, and it will bring a kind of contentment a kind of faith-filled boldness to the assembly as a whole. Since we've preached through both Acts and the pastoral epistles before, this is not the first time we've had a message about deacons. When we went through 1 Timothy a few years ago, I ended there with a list of questions, and I think those questions are still pertinent today. So I want to encourage every man in the assembly to ask themselves these questions and I want everyone in the assembly to be thinking about who within the assembly comes to mind when you hear these questions. Do I meet the qualifications of a deacon? Am I capable of being serious when seriousness is called for? Do I have the ability to remain discreet about individuals' circumstances? Am I free from addictions that prevent me from being clear-minded? Do I have a solid understanding of biblical truth? And it's not the need of perfect understanding because none of us have that yet. We're all learning. But am I confident in the basic tenets, the basic doctrines of Christian faith? Do I endeavor to obey the commands of Scripture with a pure conscience? Have I been active in the church's ministries to the point that I can say my faithfulness has been tested and I've passed that test? Is my family life a credit to my character or is it an obstacle to my Christian service? If I thought the Lord was leading me to be a servant, a deacon of the church, would I willingly submit to being in that service? And if you personally answer yes to those questions, or if those questions cause the church membership as a whole to identify specific men qualified for service as a deacon, then we need to have a further talk about this. Because the only examples we have in Scripture would indicate to us that when a church willingly follows the biblical teaching about church leadership, about elders and deacons, that it can expect the blessings of God to follow. 